Uh, good morning. We are in a series called Grafted, where we're walking through the book of Ephesians and looking at it through the lens of an author we believe to be Paul, who wrote in Romans 11 a chapter about this olive tree and how a broken piece of it had another branch from another tree that was grafted in and it started to produce new fruit. And then he writes a letter to these Gentiles, non-Jews in Ephesus, and begins to illustrate to them how they are now this branch that came into the broken aspect of what the old covenant looked like, and they're going to bring this new branch to life as this new covenant relationship. And in reality, all of us come under that new branch, that we come under the new covenant and the new story that was given to us through Jesus and how he took this established kingdom of God that we read about in the Old Testament and he added this new offshoot to it where all belong and all are welcome and all can produce fruit. And he invited us into that. And in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul writes about how we were grafted in. He talks a lot about Jesus. He talks about adoption. He talks about the sacrifice. He talks about the separation of us because of the things that we have done and maybe are still doing in sin and transgression and how the grace and mercy and peace of Jesus overcame those things. So the first three chapters are really about how we have been grafted in and a lot of it is about how specifically a community of people that did not represent the old covenant we're grafted in. So he's taking this new story and making it make sense for everyone. And he's saying everyone belongs. Everyone can come here. Everyone is part of this family. And he gives us the how we come in through Jesus. And then in chapters 4 through 6, he's going to actually change the how from how we enter into becoming part of this kingdom to how do we move forward now that we're in. What does it look like for a community of people who believes that they are a part of the tree that is connected to Jesus? What fruit should we produce? Where should we go? What should we do? Who should we include? Should we exclude anyone? Are there things about our lives that should be defined by where he is taking us and what it looks like? Those are the questions that Paul is answering in chapters 4 through 6, but he starts in an effort to answer it corporately before he goes into it personally. Because the ultimate goal of Paul in this writing is that we would move forward together as a community of people, not as individuals who happen to believe in the same God, but that we would go together. There have been a lot of times in my life that I knew where I was supposed to go, I just didn't know how I was going to get there, or if inside of me it even existed to go where I was invited to go. I don't know if you've had any of those moments in your life where you had an adventure coming, a mission trip maybe, a marriage, the first time you're having kids, a first date, do you remember that? The first one ever, right? Sixth grade-ish, maybe, check yes or no. Do you remember that you knew you were going somewhere but you didn't know how you were gonna get there and you weren't even sure that you could do it and then you saw someone else doing whatever it was really well and you thought, there's no way. There's no way that I could do that. 
my first trip to Mexico for the organization that I worked for was to go and scout out what we did there. It was a weird scenario. I'd been hired on in an orphan care organization without ever working with orphaned or vulnerable children, nor had I ever been to any of their sites internationally. And I'd been working there for about eight months before I made my first trip to Monterey. And it was one of those moments where I had seen an entire community of people that were on staff with this organization and thought, okay, that's what it looks like to live in this community, to help a community of people, but I don't think I can do that. The first thing is I don't speak Spanish. So going to Mexico for me was a little intriguing because I was thinking, I, I'm not sure that I can do this. I got to the airport and as I was boarding my first plane, I was handed a document completely in Spanish for these like papers that you have to fill out for the forms to get into the country and you have to keep a little piece of it so that you can get back out of the country and it was all in Spanish. And I looked at it and thought, I don't. I can't do this. I can't go where you're inviting me to go because I can't even read the piece of paper. And I looked at the flight attendant and said, I, I'm going to need help. And she said, oh honey, I'm sorry, I thought you were Mexican. And I thought, I, okay. I am not, but thank you. Um, and so she gave me one in English and I'm like, oh, okay, maybe I can do this. I arrived at the site and a couple of days in, it was just my sweet spot then because I'm hanging out with, with children and playing and we're doing all kinds of fun things and then the director of the site comes up and says, one of our interns is leaving tomorrow, we're going to go climb a mountain for his last day, do you want to come? And in Monterey there are some beautiful mountains, the Saddleback Mountain is one of the coolest ones, it looks like it's a saddle that you can sit in in the middle over it, only it's giant, I'm like, what, which one, the Saddleback, are we doing Matacanes, which is like a 12 hour, you climb, you repel, you dive into a cave and swim out kind of adventure, and she says, we're going to do Via Foretta, and I was like, what, why, why, why are we speaking Italian now, in Mexico, in which I already don't speak Spanish. And she said, it's called the Iron Way. It's, a, it's like a slate mountain that goes straight up about 1,600 feet. And in order to climb it, they have drilled rebar pieces of wire into the side of the mountain. And they invite you to climb it to the top. And when you get to the top, then there's a zip line from the top of that peak to a 1,500-foot mountain. And you take the two-mile zip line, and then you do three rappels down. Are you in? Yeah, I'm in. This was 2009, and, and at our site at that point, there was no way for me to communicate home. So in one fleeting moment, I had the thought, my wife in Ohio with our child, we had one then, has no idea that I'm about to go up a 1,600-foot mountain, zip line two miles across these, you know, this chasm, and then rappel down. I think she would approve. And so I signed off, because we always agree on things together. And off to the mountain we went. And when we got to the base of the mountain, it took about three hours to drive and then traverse this baseline trip to a mountain. And we get to the bottom of the mountain. And I look up at the mountain and think, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And thankfully in that moment, a guy walks around the corner. I'm not sure if he lives in the mountain or what, but he just walks around the corner from this mountain with an aluminum ladder in his hands. I'm like, do you like live? That's cool if you live in the mountain with a ladder. And he just walked over, leans the ladder against the wall, and tells us all that we're going to climb. And then our guides come out with these two giant backpacks filled with everything supposedly we're going to need to get up the mountain. The interesting thing about that day is I had a backpack too, and it was red, and it had all my stuff in it. And so I looked, and I thought, oh, they have red backpacks, and all their stuff's in it, and I have a red backpack, and all my stuff's in it. 
it gave me this feeling of safety of like, okay, we're going to be good as long as we listen to the guides. And we started to climb the mountain. And after I finished that mountain climb, I thought, I know how to climb mountains now. And it's a story I've told often, and it's a story that has quite a few adventures in it. And it's a story that I look back on and think, if someone that knew me had actually seen how scary this was, they would have been completely freaked out by it. Because every time I'm in Monterey and I drive past the same mountain, I think, why did I ever climb that? That was the dumbest thing ever. Because it's massive. But I get a confidence that I know what I'm doing and I know where I'm going. Until I see other stories of mountain climbers, and then I see their stories and I think, I don't know anything. And I came upon this story, and this story really defines Ephesians 4 for me. So I want you to watch this video really quickly. I don't even know. I feel like we could just go to lunch and talk about that. Right? Like we should just be done. But it all comes for me from Scripture, and I just want to go into Ephesians chapter 4 first. I'm going to just talk to you about verses 7 through 10, and then I'm going to go back and frame why we saw what we just saw. It says, but in verse 7, but to each one of us grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. That's Psalm 68, 18 that Paul is, is paraphrasing there. And then it, it continues to go and says, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. As I read that in Ephesians 4, I'm reminded that it was Christ first who was in the highest place. Like he's the one who is just walking across the highest of the high mountain, the accomplishment over top of the accomplishment. And he lived there and he dwelled there and he could see all things and be in all places. And in order for us to see and be with him, he chose to descend and to come down with us. Not just so that he could tell us about the top of the mountain, but so that he could empower the church with gifts so that they could climb too. So that each one of us could ascend to the top of this experience and see what the kingdom looks like from where the Father and the Son and the Spirit sit forever and ever. That that's what Paul is drawing in. He's saying, if you want to see what the church looks like, the church looks like following the path up the mountain to see where Jesus came from so that we can go where he has returned to. And the beauty of this passage is that Paul takes some words from Psalm 68 that actually say, from man, he, Christ, and in Psalms it says that he received gifts from man in the Psalms, is what it would say, is that he received the worship and the praise because he had descended and that he had conquered and taken captives. Looks, it looks demonic in that part of the passage where it's like he punched Satan in the face kind of thing. And that he then, it says in Psalm, that he receives gifts from man for what he has done. But Paul says, wait a minute, actually, actually the word that we're looking for here is to give. That Christ has given gifts to people so that they can ascend as well. That's why I love this little 
video of watching a guy free solo is because it's actually an oxymoron that he free soloed. He didn't. He spent months with his friends working out the, the path and figuring out when the optimal time of the year to climb would be. Researchers, scientists, former climbers, stories of those who hadn't made it. He used all of this data and brought it in to figure out when would be the time to actually make this climb. What ways can't you do it so that he could find a way that we could do it? And then my favorite part of the entire video, it's contentious because I like the part where he's just standing on the side with his kind of arms out just going, hey, free, right here, like I'm just up here. But I think what I love more than that is his friend who goes first attached to cables, safe on the mountain, chipping away at anything that he can't grab, anything that would cause his friend to fall off. He's doing it and just knocking everything off. And you can hear even Alex in his voices on, the, on that, that piece where he says, halfway up, I'm just tired of it. I just want to climb the thing. The reason that he doesn't, his friend won't let him and he's tethered to him. He said, I'm not letting you go. Why? Because you'll die. We're only halfway up. If we don't go all the way up and carve out all of this stuff and get rid of all of these wet pieces because you're about to cross both your hands and your feet at the same time and try to make a move without anything attached to you, I'm not doing this wrong. I'm going to make sure that this is as perfect of a path for you to walk that could be possible. So you're staying connected to me until we get to the top. Do you get it, right? Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus has done as we ascend? In these words that Paul is saying, you ascend because he came down and he then carved the path. Now let's all go. And some of you will go as trainers and you will always stay tethered and it's okay. And you will always be the ones carving out space for others to go up. And then there are some of us in this room, some of those crazy people that about a third of the way up were like, can you take this thing off of me because I would just like to climb freely and go past you and go faster. And after I get finished with this mountain, I've got three more that I plan on climbing this week. Because we can't wait. And there are others who are part of this story. They're behind the camera, right? Like they just want to tell the story. They want to make sure everyone knows about the two guys that got up the mountain and then the one guy that went up the mountain by himself. There are these writers like Paul in Christianity that say, I'm going to make sure it's all written down. I'm going to make sure that we all keep it. I'm going to make sure that we can move forward with it. And these aren't just my ideas. Read the next verses. In the next verses in 11 through 13, Ephesians, it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may build up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I believe that these are a couple of the most skipped over sentences in the New Testament because they say apostles and prophets and we think that, was, that part's dead. We take a look at this verse and as a lot of Christians, we look at it and think that was for like Paul and Peter 
Maybe Barnabas even a little bit, this encouraging guy. We don't need those today. And we've also seen people who've taken on the mantle of apostle who have done some really damaging things to the church. And we look at prophet, and we think, well, if we have the written word, and the word is established, and the word is here, and the word is with us, why would we need prophets anymore? We don't need accountability to the word when we can all read it and we can look at it and we can preach it on Sundays and then hold accountability. And so we took these apostles and prophets and we kind of erased them from the verses. And we said, Evangelists, I think we're okay with those as long as they're not on the corner that I'm standing at after a Reds game because I'm not even sure that I agree with what they're saying and that it's anything to do with good news. I'm kind of like, yeah, the last thing I want to hear is from you right now, my man. Let's go have a beer and talk about it. But we're good with evangelism from the side of sharing good news. We want to talk about it. We want to tweet about it. We want to post photos about it. We want everybody to like our words and photos about the good news. We're okay with evangelists. Shepherds, we're great with that. We've actually handed the church over to shepherds in the majority of places where we have given the church over to people like shepherds who love to take care of the church. They want to make sure that everyone is counted for. They want to make sure that everyone stays in. They lead by the rod and the staff by protection and encouragement. And they protect and they encourage. And we have handed the church over to pastors in a lot of ways of saying, protect us, encourage us, keep the bad people out, and keep us believing that there is good news. And then we have teachers. We're also pretty great with teachers being in the, uh, in the church. We filled bookstores with the writings from teachers in a lot of ways of how-tos. Let me have an acrostic for that. Can you teach me how to do that? How should I pray? How should I read my Bible? How do I lead worship? How do I connect to the church? We're, we're usually pretty good with evangelists and shepherds and teachers being part of the church, but I'm not sure that we're great with the apostle and prophet part, and so we never climb mountains. We sit in rooms and talk about what mountains used to look like before we knew Jesus. We also struggle to navigate God's truth in the context of cultural shifts in a way that a visionary, messianic, prophetic, self-sacrificing, redeeming Jesus would see cultural context. Because we struggle to give prophets a voice in the kingdom of God. But apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, they're the way that Paul says we get up the mountain. Together. All of them. Cohesively. Because prophets keep apostles from making up directions. Apostles are great. Small a, right? Maybe you're more comfortable with that. Apostles, sent ones on behalf of God. Are they still existent today? Pretty sure Echo wouldn't be here if there wasn't one with red hair that wanted to come to Cincinnati. Prophets, do we need them? Yes, because we need that balance of someone saying, I see where you're going, I see what you love, but Jesus never said that, you're wrong. And we're probably going to fail unless we figure out what he said and how he said to do it. 
evangelists? Do we need people saying this, this? You have to be part of this. You've got to come here. You have to be part of it. This. this is for you. You belong. You are welcome. Come in, everyone. Everyone is welcome here. And even evangelists working in the church say, don't leave. Don't leave. We see you. We know you. We love you. We want you. You're here. Do we need those? Yes. Shepherd saying, it's safe. It's safe to share. It's safe to be vulnerable. You can be transparent here. We will not let you run away. If you start to slip into darkness, I've got this rod, this staff. It kind of pulls you back a little bit. And even if you want to stand in the darkness, you can feel the staff. You know the way home. Those are shepherds. Do we need those? Yeah, I'm good with it. Teachers, because the story of God is not for ordained ministers. The story of God is for his church. So how do we give it into the hands of people if no one is learning how to be the people of God? Do we need teachers? Yes. We need all of this together. And at times, though, because it's such a powerful chapter about who we are and how we move forward, we skip this. I really like this chapter, by the way. I don't know if you can tell. I really like this chapter because I think there are men and women and children who fit apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, and you can't take that away because of their gender. You can't take it away because of race. You can't take it away because of poverty. You can't take it away because they didn't grow up with a voice. You can't take it away because of what country they're from. You can't take it away because it's God-given and it's the only way we move forward. And so whoever is the sent one that goes gets to be the sent one that goes. And whoever has the passion for the Word of God has the passion for the Word of God. I love it because it talks about diversity without the labels that we normally fall into when we talk about diversity. Instead, it says, are the sent ones welcome here? Are the prophets welcome? Are the evangelists welcome? Are the shepherds and teachers welcome? I say absolutely. And the question is, do you want to climb? Because whoever you are in that scenario, you still have to get yourself to the base of the mountain. And you still get to be the one that has the tools and the resources to climb the way God invited you to climb. I'm standing at the foot of a mountain and I see two men with two really big red backpacks and I look at my red backpack and I say, I have a red backpack. I feel comfortable now. In my red backpack are all of these things. An extra shirt because it had gotten really hot on the journey. I didn't think to pack one. I just had one on and had to take it off because it was really hot. Three-fourths of a water bottle. I was thirsty. And, yeah, that was all. I don't do sunscreen, so that wasn't even in there. I don't, I don't do bug spray, not there. I had absolutely nothing in my backpack that was either going to get us up or down that particular mountain. But because my backpack was red, I believed that I belonged. And then we get ready to climb, and our guide, Juan, picks up this. I mean, it's like 
I think I could have fit in the backpack. Another version of me might have been in the backpack just so that they made sure that enough numbers came back down off the mountain. But he looks at me and he says, this backpack, this backpack has everything you need in order for all of us to get up and down the mountain. And I'm like, that is good because you are our guide. And if you didn't have anything to get us up and down the mountain, I would be scared. And then he looks and says, this is my friend Saul. Saul, by the way, came out of a field. We picked him up in the car on the way there. Like, he just walks into our car as we're driving. I'm like, How, welcome to the car, Saul. Saul also holds up his red backpack. And Juan says, Saul has everything in that red backpack that can get you up and down that ma- mountain. I will be in the front. Saul will be in the back. If I fall off the mountain and die, Saul will get you off the mountain. Okay. And I look at my red backpack. And I'm like, I, I don't even want to take it now. I just kind of want to take it off and just participate. But I have to take it with me. And every time we go to another spot on the mountain, you'll see Juan or Saul taking something out of their bag to get us safely up and safely across and safely down. Paul says we have backpacks too, and this is actually how he started the chapter. He says in the beginning... In verses 3 through 6, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, backpack stuff. One spirit, backpack stuff. Just as you were called to one hope, backpack stuff. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is God saying, here it is. If you take this, if you take verses 4 through 6 up the mountain, everybody gets there. Because there's one. What's in your backpack? And are you ready to climb? Let's pray. Jesus, I love this room because I know that there are apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers in here. And that even this morning, there are some who are sent and know that they are called to go. And they've just been itching to know that they belong. And I pray that you just empower them and send them out. And there are those who have such a passion for your word that they can't wait to talk about it in the context of all that is going on in this world. And you, you are giving them a voice. And there are those who just love what is happening in your church and in your story and they can't wait to tell others and they didn't know that it was okay to. And there are those who see those that aren't okay and they're going after them and they're taking care and nurturing the lost both in the church and out and there are those who have already created plans on how to teach others to climb the mountain in this room and it's in your name Jesus that I ask you to take us up the mountain with you it's through you that we pray Amen.